Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Three, two, one. Ben here. It's bonus time in the Ben Jarofsky Show. As I speak, it is Friday, August 9th. That's when we're doing this interview. Keep that in mind because you may be listening to this, I don't know, in the year 2023. It's a podcast. It lasts forever. We'll be talking politics, politics, politics with my guest. And as we always do in a bonus guest, introduce yourself. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Dennis. Thank you for having me back. My name is Neil Mohammed. I am a former politician, which was an original uh, uh, case for having me on, I think, a couple of months ago. I was a Democratic candidate for Illinois' 16th Congressional District um, in 2018. Before that, I was a uh, professor of political science at the University of Michigan. And right now, I work as a consultant uh, to hospitals across the country struggling with the cost of prescription drugs. Now, when, uh, before we take the deep dive uh, into what we want to talk about today, you say former politicians. Does that mean you've decided never to run for office again? Well, I guess, yeah, once a politician, always a politician, I suppose. Um, I don't have any plans for running for anything right now, but okay. you never know. All right. Very good. That's good. When you said, for, the way you said former, like, oh my God, mom is just dropping out of it altogether. In recovery. In extended, <laughs> in extended dry period. It's been a year. All right. Uh, but no, I hear you. Uh, I, and remember last time we talked to the former Jeopardy contestant. Oh, that's, that's right. right. How I can forget that. For, thank you, Dennis. Former Jeopardy <laughs> Oh, my God. Oh, I'll ask him the last trivia question. Oh, let's see. Former Jeopardy contestant. And last last time he was on the show, it's one of our most popular bonuses. Uh, we did the deep dive on health care. And um, so here you go. Let's see if you can pull this off, All right, young hit man. Me. Um, I just gave a couple other guests this trivia question. He loves trivia. Uh, yeah, I love trivia. Well, <laughs> so does Neil. He was on Jeopardy. Uh, well, recovering from trivia in the same way that I'm recovering from politics. Okay. It's been a little while. All right. Well, this will really push you back into uh, needing recovery. All right, here we go. I'm not going to do it the way Jeopardy does it because I don't even know how. Sure. I want you to do, uh, in ascending order, the three oldest Democrats in the race for president go in ascending. So youngest to oldest of the three oldest. Yes. Youngest of the three, Elizabeth Warren, second oldest, Joe Biden, oldest. No, second oldest, Bernie Sanders, oldest, Joe Biden. I am sorry, sir. Uh, you had it reversed. Uh, oh. Dyslexia of old people. Uh, <laughs> you had it right the first time. Then you doubted yourself. Biden is actually younger than Bernie Sanders. That's Bernie, correct. Uh, that's Robert Mueller. Uh, yes. Uh, uh, he comes into the studio from time to time. Uh, Bernie is the oldest at 77. Biden is 76. Uh, Elizabeth Warren is 70. Okay. And uh, Bernie has a birthday coming up. So in a little, in a month, Bernie will be 78. Now, one last trivia question before we get to the meat of the matter. Where does Donald Trump fit into this in terms of age? Donald Trump is currently, shoot, I'm going to say 75. 
He is 73 years old, which means he's older than Elizabeth Warren, yet younger than Joe Biden. That's correct. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Mueller. I'm just you know, loving when you verify, make me feel good about myself. All right, validate my existence. Neil Muhammad, let's, um, let's get into the issues of the day. I want you to put on your political science hat. Uh, we talked a little bit before we started the show, and we were talking about some of the myths that are sort of governing our view of this election cycle, some of the myths that are governing our view of what's the best uh, procedure to follow to nominate a Democratic candidate who can defeat Donald Trump. And we just rattle off a few myths. Now let's uh, take the time to elaborate a bit. Let's start with the myth. Oh, let's go with the myth of the centrist voter. Talk about, in your opinion, what the myth of the centrist voter. Yeah. And let me, I mean, I'll I'll, I'll bracket this a little bit, some of the stuff we're talking about before we got in the air, Ben. So, you know, the reason we're even having this conversation is, and this happens every four years, but it's especially the case this time around for reasons that are obvious. People are um, rightly very concerned about winning the White House next year. Um, But... I think, especially among liberal or democratic observers, we put ourselves in this position of thinking that, you know, politics is not about pursuing an objective, supporting your favorite candidate. Politics is this sort of problem to be solved. Mm -hmm. So let's figure out, you know, what the right key is to put in this lock to win the election, which is a very different way than... I think a lot of conservative Republican observers think about it. You know, Republicans, at least not in public, maybe I'm wrong about the conversations they're having in private, but at least not in public, they don't tie themselves into knots thinking about who's going to be electable or negotiate among themselves or against themselves rather in these primaries by saying we're not going to support, you know, this candidate or this candidate. They, you know, it's much more driven toward goals and outcomes that I don't agree with as, as none of us do, but it's, it's very much more about that exercise of power than it is about electability per se, which I don't think is a coincidence. Mm -hmm. So, okay. That, uh, gets into the issue, the myth of the centrist voter, right? There's a, there was a great story and I was thinking about this earlier today on my way in. So there was a great story in, I think it was the Atlantic shortly after the 2016 election. And, uh, you guys know the, the group third way, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So they're always wasting their money promoting their tweets into my timeline for some <laughs> reason. But um, so third way, the idea that, you know, unlike where Democrats were in the 70s and late 60s, we can't be a party of labor. We can't be a party of, of, of rocking the boat. We can't be a party of, you know, pursuing too much racial justice too quickly. We've got to appeal to this sensible centrist voter. And so what they did was they sent a couple of folks out from, you know, the head office in D.C. to go to places, especially places Democrats or Hillary Clinton, Democrats generally didn't do so well in, like Wisconsin and Ohio and wherever. And they convened these focus groups and they asked folks, I guess, the sorts of things you ask focus groups, like what's on your mind and why, you know, what are you talking about? What issues are important to you? And much to their surprise, I think not to any of our surprises, or at least certainly not to my surprise when I first read this story, the the sensible center, the um, we need to change taxes just a little bit, or we need to um, uh, introduce more private funding for Social Security, this sort of stuff, the, the, the budget deficit, 
all of those issues that third way is convinced is the is the key again to abuse that metaphor to unlock the election nobody cares about those issues or at least you know not voters certainly in these hotly contested areas that's just not the way people think about politics you can imagine sort of the dc cocktail party where people kind of stroke their chin and um you know, it's the mark of a serious person to think that, oh, we got to do something about these entitlements or, oh, we got to, um, I, I tease a friend of mine who's from, from Minnesota about Senator Amy Klobuchar, uh, uh, kicking off her own presidential race, this cycle by announcing her support for a system of tax advantaged savings accounts mm, that was going yeah. to, you know, really turn around the economy in yeah. places like DeKalb, Illinois, where I live, like giving people some more forms to fill out, yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, voters just don't think that way. There's a huge gap there. So what, how do voters think? Well, they think about a couple of things and, um, I'm going to, I need to shout out one person in particular, my friend, Dr. Chris Scoveron, who's now the director of research at civics, um, which is a um, big online polling shop. Speaking of which, if you ever guys want to have an official pollster for the Ben Jarofsky program, we can probably make that Let's happen. Let's make that happen. Um, this Chris, show could use one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we got to hit that. Uh, we got to hit that. Uh, Robert Mueller. You are correct. Sir. Yeah. Well, that's not, no, that's the, that's like McMahon, not Mueller. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, no, so anyway, so Chris did this really important research a couple of years ago, and it's going to sound silly, but nobody had thought to do it before. So what he did with his co-authors, they surveyed um, a bunch of elected officials, you know, House members, stuff like that, and they asked these House members of the ones they were able to get, the couple hundred, whoever, um, you know, you think about this, this, you know, spectrum, right, from left to right, liberal to conservative, you know, where, where are you on that? How, you know, what do you take the liberal or the conservative issue on conservative or liberal position on issue one, issue two, issue three, put yourself again on that, on that line, on, on that continuum. And then where do you think your voters in your district are in those same issues? And they did that for Republican legislators. They did it for democratic legislators. And what they found was for both Republicans and Democrats, these elected officials consistently overestimated how conservative their voters are. So conservative Republican, I should say, elected officials think that all their constituents are radically conservative, which is why they're so aggressive on pursuing some of this stuff, so aggressive in not doing anything about gun violence in this country. They're so aggressive about trying to kill Obamacare, stuff like that. Democratic legislators also think their constituents are extremely conservative, which explains why they're so timid about not wanting to rock the boat too much on doing something meaningful about gun violence, about not um, pushing the ball forward on health justice in this country through Medicare for all and so on and so on and so on. Voters don't think about, mo- I don't want to put this, voters do not exist in a world where we line everyone up from left to right and you're either more liberal or more conservative. They take issues, especially when a pollster asks them about it, they take positions on issues on a case-by-case basis, and that doesn't necessarily add up to, um, I'm a liberal or or conservative. You can imagine, um, you know, folks in labor unions who vote Democratic pretty consistently, they are 
liberal or left-wing on certain issues. They are conservative um, or right-wing on other issues. Mm -hmm. It's a case-by-case basis. And the one other thing I'll throw in here too is that it depends a ton on how you put the issue to a voter. Mm, Messaging. Mm -hmm. Messaging and framing and even how the question is asked. Mm -hmm. So uh, folks have been crowing about... Um, oh, people might say they support Medicare for all, but if you tell them it's going to take away, yes, they're private, then they, then they oppose it. Well, okay. But you're also putting your thumb on the scale and quite frankly, uh, we don't need to retry this again, but, um, private insurance only can take away your choice in doctor, which presumably is what actually matters to folks when they think about healthcare, right? So yeah, sure. If you put a negative spin on something, they're going to say they oppose it, but you could just as well put a positive spin on and talk about all the, you know, all the unnecessary deaths due to lack of uh, access to healthcare that happened in this country, uh, all the extra costs, all the extra waiting, all the extra paperwork and just, you know, hardship and misery, then people support it. And frankly, that's a, you know, in my view anyway, a more accurate description of what the policy is. So it's very issue driven and it's very um, framing driven, but as a general rule, voters to the extent they are liberal or conservative seem to be a lot more liberal than both Democrats and Republicans give them credit for. Well, you're really moving into one of my favorite themes. And I lived through this in the 2016 election with friends and family of the baby boomer persuasion. Mm-hmm. I voted for Bernie, uh, Bernie Epton, but I voted for Bernie Sanders. I have uh, went back in time 30 years there to <laughs> get my Bernies mixed up. Uh, I voted for Bernie Sanders. Uh, he close, most closely articulates my view of the world in the race against Hillary Clinton. Many of my friends of the baby boomer persuasion my age, 60 and above, said Bernie Sanders is unrealistic We'll never get the things he's asking for. And then they went further and said, he'll turn off voters. And then they always had this like mythical place where voters would be turned off by Bernie, like Michigan or Wisconsin. And so you're, you're, and they would get angry. They would, some people would get angry at me for voting for Bernie Sanders. And I, when I, I, I absorbed all those blows, Neil, in 2016, uh, but it's left me really curious. Do you think that the voters, based on what you're telling me, so all these voters who voted for Hillary Clinton against Bernie Sanders because they were afraid of the reaction other voters would have to Bernie Sanders, they themselves were voting against their own political interests, if you follow me. Many of these baby boomers, like John Lewis, for instance, the congressman from Georgia, mm-hmm. at one point mm-hmm. came out and said, I don't know if you remember this, he was a strong advocate of Hillary Clinton, and he said it's unrealistic to say that government's going to pay for college. Mm-hmm. So don't tell people that, which I find absurd, Neil, that a politician would caution other politicians not to make promises they couldn't keep. That's what politicians tend to do. They make promises. So do you, do you hear what i'm saying yeah, yeah, yeah. do you think that democrats have talked themselves into a more conservative position because they're misjudging the rest of the world uh short answer yes um slightly longer answer i think there's probably two or three different things going on so one part of the answer is i think fundamentally misunderstanding how voters even voters 
who are even people, I should say, who are going to vote, people who can be activated or gotten into the into the polling place on Election Day, misunderstanding how it is news actually reaches them about these issues. So, um, you know, you might wring your hands about, oh, um, Bernie's popular, his policies are popular. Um, yeah, the finances make sense. Medicare for all is cheaper than private insurance, but oh gosh, no, it's going to, you know, there's going to be this big number that says your tax on your paycheck. And yeah, it's a smaller number than the number that said your private health insurance premium. So you're coming out ahead, but how do you explain that to folks? Um, even voters who follow this stuff pretty closely, the part they're kind of hearing or, or reducing it to in a lot of words, in a lot of ways is, um, is this candidate speaking about a world speaking about the world that i live in mm-hmm. and and this is kind of my jumping off point into politics is that um you know we had this message set aside the hand ring for a second we had this message from hillary clinton in that election which is that um the system works and everything's going to be okay mm-hmm. and for a lot of voters especially again where i live in dekalb other parts of the midwest in particular things aren't going so hot so there's a there's a there's a um you know, there's a collision there. There's a there's a disconsonance between a candidate saying everything is going to be okay, and you looking at your window and seeing that maybe things aren't so hot. So I think that's part of it. I think part of it is underestimating voters' ability to understand even a somewhat technical issue like this. You know, dollar for dollar trade off between private insurance and um, and um, uh, a national health insurance plan like Medicare for all. Um, I do think that. There have got to be at least some folks. Well, I don't, obviously don't know what's in John Lewis's heart, but I think there's, um, you know, some folks who maybe don't support that issue. And it's easy to say, oh, well, I, w- I, I secretly agree with you. I just don't think people are ready for it. I think at least some of those folks just don't believe in the policy, which is fine, but I would appreciate them saying it rather yeah. than hang, hanging at somebody else. And the final thing, too, is that. You know, okay, so, and this is, I, I mentioned listening to one of your early episodes earlier, um, you know, regarding the debates and whatnot, some of that conversation. So, um, I think there's a badge of honor that a lot of political observers like to wear, where um, you're a serious person if you're savvy and you're savvy if you're moderate, kind of like what we were talking about a second ago. Um, folks of democratic persuasions maybe sometimes don't like to think about politics is being about accruing power. There's this idea, well, we got to do whatever it takes to win the next election. Yeah, sure, fine. We desperately need to win this next election in 2020. Don't get me wrong. But we're going to win that election by being electable so we can win the next election, right? There, it's not it's not married up to a political project of we're going to win this election and then we're going to do something and we're willing to work over several election cycles to make that happen. I think Republicans, unfortunately, do get that a little bit better. I mean, when these folks come out in Republican primaries, you know, real lunatics like, I don't know, Rick Santorum or, um, who was that woman from Minnesota? Michelle Bachman. Oh God, I forgot Um, her. That, you know, whole cast of characters, back when we were laughing at them for having 16 people on stage before we knew we were going to have 20 (laughs) on stage in a couple of years. Um, Folks pushing super unpopular positions. Nobody wants you know, less healthcare. Nobody wants all this crap. 
they don't negotiate against themselves, though. They go out, they make the case, they try to scrabble together these little political coalitions. They whatever happens in the next election happens in the next election, and they keep doing it. Yeah. So there's a there's a a motivation over time toward a concrete goal. Whereas I think a lot of the time, at least nationally, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but I think Democrats nationally, in presidential years, they think about electability for electability's sake, and it's not really connected again to that larger struggle. I'll, I'll, I'll take it one step further. There's two in, in recent years, both of these events happened before you were born, but you're a student of politics, so you know about them. And just, I'm going to tell you two events politically that happened in my lifetime mm-hmm. and the reaction of the parties and the results. Number one, 1964, Barry Goldwater. The worst electoral defeat, I want to say, of all time. Was it worse than uh, Roosevelt Landon in 36? I think so. I believe Barry Goldwater did not, took a handful, whatever. It was yeah, one yeah. of the worst. Mm-hmm. A tremendous defeat. And he was running as a conservative, far right. Okay, 1972, George McGovern running as a liberal, far left, and relatively speaking, in in the terms of these politics, crushed by Richard Nixon. Okay, what are the lessons that the Democratic Party and Republican Party took for those crushing defeats? In the Republican Party, the lesson they learned is we are going to move the country to where we are. In the Democratic situation where McGovern lost, Bill Clinton who was working for McGovern in Texas, said, I will never Mm -hmm. be out-liberaled again. I am moving to the center. So Mm -hmm. Democrats abandon their principles, abandon their values, abandon the things that make them Democrats to become more right. And Republicans just say, hey, guys, we're not moving. You're going to come to join. We're going to do everything we can to move the center to the right. And the Democrats, dumb as they are, voluntarily join them. That, to me, underscores everything you just said. I uh, George McGovern is near and dear to my heart for, for a couple of reasons. The first, on a personal note, George McGovern is in some way responsible for me being here. So the way that a young woman from South Dakota meets a young man who's a recent immigrant from Pakistan was that... Um, <laughs> I wonder where you were going with this one. Yeah, so George McGovern yeah. from South Dakota, uh-huh. uh, a girlfriend of my mom's from high school, was volunteering or working, I guess, for McGovern in Chicago. My mom came from Rapid City, South Dakota to Chicago to visit her or whatever. And this other friend of theirs was, was dating someone locally and just through mutual friends met the individual who ended up being my dad. So there's one... Uh, Point of trivia, and it's not trivia because it only appeals to me, but um, (laughs) one little historical uh, curiosity there. But yeah, you're exactly right. And everyone uh, dumps on George McGovern, but what were the three issues that he was tarred on? The three A's, acid, amnesty, abortion. So acid, anti-drug war, amnesty, anti-Vietnam war, abortion, being pro-choice and supporting women's right to choose. He was right about all those. So you tell me, I, you know, (laughs) so I don't know. yeah. They repudiate these things that, frankly, are pretty popular, at least they are nowadays. I'm, you know, I don't want to oversimplify what happened in 72, but um, these are broadly popular positions that people had to fight for for a long time, and they happen to be the correct ones. So I don't know why there's a... Um, I don't know, understand why the lesson 1972 is we can't do that. I mean, which is exactly what you're describing, Ben, and you're, and you're totally on point with that. I'm not sure why folks internalize that lesson as opposed to... Yeah, we got waxed, but we got to go out there and work harder next time. Well, I feel that Democrats believe the worst things 
that Republicans say about them. So for instance, and because I see more Democrats who are troubled uh, by the things that Dem- Republicans say about them. And then, for instance, in the last debate, uh, mm-hmm. the, where was the, um, was it the CNN debate? Every single question that, what's that gentleman's name, D? Jake Tapper. Every single, I always forget the dude's name. Every single question that Jake Tapper asked pretty much, or a lot of the questions, uh, had to do with sort of like a Republican attitude toward oh a Democratic yeah. position. And why would you d- defend that? And uh, like he was, he the presumption he made was that there was something wrong with the Democratic position I don't see that same question, that same worldview being posed to Republicans. Do you, do you understand what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, they're like, certainly the not challenged. <clears throat> they're certainly not challenged on the unpopularity, the perceived unpopularity of the ideas in the same way the Democrats are. And that dem- and that frust- and that de- debate was frustrating as heck for that reason, because they kept coming back to... I wouldn't have recognized John Delaney if I hit him with my car up until two Tuesdays ago. Now yeah. here he is getting the third or fourth most screen time in that debate yeah. to just scream about, you know, BS Republican lies about Medicare for all. And again, Jake Tapper is entitled to his opinion. I'd appreciate if he just said it was his opinion as opposed to framing it as a neutral position, even when it's not. And then given this has been nobody license to go out and, 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 and make the case so he can put his hand on the uh, thumb on the scale without being seen to, uh, to be doing such. Um, no, again, again, case in point, um, yes, we underestimate the popularity of these ideas. Yes, we underestimate the popularity of the democratic platform, broadly speaking, but it goes to show you there, there are folks, you know, we know historically, um, healthcare reform has gone through huge fits and spurts over the decades, especially since, you know, the origin, the, the employer backed insurance market in the, in the 1940s, um, folks have been fighting for a, a more just, more sane, um, better system like Medicare for all for decades and decades and decades. Um, but see, look how much public opinion has moved on this issue just in the last couple of years. And, um, Magically, it seems to have moved because a, a a candidate with a large national following started talking about it and making the case and making it pretty strongly and frankly at times uh, incessantly. Yeah. Um, politics is I <laughs> as a former candidate I know better than most. Politics is extremely difficult. I do not think it's particularly complicated. Well, uh, all right. That candidate you alluded to was Bernie Sanders, uh, who raised the issue of national health care in the 2016 campaign, got close to 50 percent of the, the vote in the Democratic primary uh, up against some big odds, not only just in financing, but the, the, the people who ran the party were against him and were trying to ha- have Hillary Clinton uh, win. So now here we are four years later, Bernie's running again uh, and. I can't imagine that the people in America, <laughs> maybe I have too much confidence in them, Neil, the people of America, if given a choice between Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, given a choice between a candidate who openly says, I want you to have health care, and a candidate who's saying, I am to trying to destroy the only health care plan that most of you have, would choose the latter. And that gets into the other myth you were talking about, the myth that voters are dumb. If voters choose Trump over Bernie Sanders when they're given such an obvious choice 
between a candidate who is promising and has staked his entire career on giving them something they want and need, and a candidate who staked his entire career in destroying what it is that they want and need, if they choose the latter over the former, then I am sorry. The myth of the dumb voter is not a myth. Voters are dumb. Respond to that. So we're going to try to go through a graduate level seminar in public opinion <laughs> and media politics okay. in five or six minutes. I'll try right. to pull this up. Okay. Okay. So I mentioned earlier, you know, to the extent that people think about politics, they tend to think about issues. Well, yeah. they also kind of think about identities, right? So, um, and historically identities sorted people into one party or another in differing sort of ways. So, you know, if, if I were a, um, you know, if I was a member of a, of a labor union, you know, one identity I have is as a union member and that might, you know, get me to think of myself as a Democrat or think, my, think about myself in terms of supporting democratic positions. Well, I might also be an evangelical Christian. And if I think about that identity, that's going to cause me to support other more conservative issues. I might think about myself as making a certain amount of money, right? And that's going to, to lead me to um, uh, think about issues in another way, which is also a more conservative way. I might be a, a person of color, which would tend to make me think about issues in a more liberal way and so on and so on down the line. Now, it is very hard to talk someone out of something they already believe. So if somebody truly believes that, so let's see, what's a good one? If someone truly believes that um, the Second Amendment gives you an inalienable right to have as many guns as you want, and they need to have guns because their family's in danger, and they got to make sure they can defend their home, and so on, and so on, and so on, it's very hard Right. I could go up to that person and say, listen, I get it. I understand what you're thinking, but look at the data and you are asked, you're a hundred times more likely to accidentally shoot yourself a thousand times more likely, probably closer to it, more likely for you to accidentally shoot yourself or your kid to accidentally shoot themselves than you ever are to defend your home from an intruder. Right. That's mathematically that's true, but people, it is very hard to talk someone out of position, not least because who wants and we're all in the same boat, this isn't a Republican thing, who wants to admit that they're wrong? That's really hard. Um, so it's hard, so persuasion is tough, but what's, what's more practical, and it's again to the point about the, you know, the myth of the dumb voter or whatever, try to influence, try to change the way we're framing or packaging these issues, right? Have the discussion, don't win the discussion on their that I say as a Democrat, as a liberal Democrat, they're um, on their terms, on Republicans' terms, on conservatives' terms, have it on your terms. So don't make the um, the argument against Trump about, oh, he's a dangerous racist maniac. He is, mm-hmm. but that's not going to dislodge people from supporting him. And frankly, this is another um, a good book for all your aspiring candidates to read out there if you want to think about, uh, you know, getting trained up on this stuff. So there's a psychologist at Stanford named George Lakoff, mm-hmm. you may have heard of, and he's written a couple of books on this. He's done some democratic consultings. I understand it. Um, his insight's very simple, which is that if you engage with an argument on somebody else's terms and use those terms to try to refute the argument, all you've done is repeat the same language. So go back to 2016. The, uh, the message from from Team Hillary, Team Blue, was don't support Donald Trump because he's a he's dangerous, dangerous Donald. Yeah. 
Well, he likes that term. His whole appeal, and frankly, part of his message is, "I'm the I'm the wild card. I'm the, ex, the outsider. The non-politician is going to blow the stall, uh, blow all the stuff up, and drain the swamp, and blah blah blah." You're making an argument that has to be true. He is a dangerous lunatic. What you're doing on their terms, you're repeating a word that he's even used to describe himself. So let's not use his language or his symbolism. Let's talk about symbolism that favors our side, which is the he's a rich jerk who's taking money out of your pocket. He's the guy who's stiffing all his contractors, which they talked about a little bit in that election, from my view, not nearly enough. I, if I'm Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren for that matter, I am here because you, the little guy, are getting screwed and you're getting screwed by Donald Trump and here's how. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about. We're going to try to get you to think of yourself as a working person, as a person who doesn't have a ton of money, instead of thinking about these other competing identities. Now, that's easier said than done. You know, I don't want to be too glib here, but um, I think a lot of what we ascribe to, you know, the the underinformed, the low information voter is really a failure to understand that a lot of voters who disagree with us are making in some sense, and I don't mean this normatively, right? I don't, I don't think it's, I don't want to give people too much credit, but they're reaching a conclusion based on themes, pictures, symbols, identities that are hand. And what we got to do desperately is try to change the, get them to think in a different mindset. Don't change their mind, but change the mindset they're bringing to politics. That's the really, that's the really key insight. And that's how I think, you know, in terms of winning elections, you get people to hear you out. You get those non-voters to show up. All right. Let's, uh, not voters to show up. Yeah, that's very important as well. Let's talk about, you talk about framing an issue. It's very important how you present an issue, how you package an issue. All right, let's take the issue I just brought up. National health care. Bernie's mm-hmm. for it. Let's say Bernie is the standard bearer. Uh, he's in the top three, definitely. So let's say uh, sure. he's the standard bearer and he's up against Donald Trump. How do you package national health care in order to win the election? I think you, you think you talk about two things and don't get sucked into the sand trap of, um, you know, cause the, cause they're going to, I don't know if Trump, who knows what Trump will say. <laughs> um, if I were advising a Republican candidate, I'd talk about, you know, just making up crap, but you know, make stuff up. You're yeah. not, you're going to lose your doctor. Yeah. All the stuff they did with the, with the affordable care act yeah. in 2010. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, don't bother trying to dispute that. That's a lie all the stuff about you're going to lose your doctor and blah, blah, blah. But again, like we were just saying, it's very hard to push someone off that belief once they have it. And in the course of trying to do so, you're repeating at least to a certain extent, the other side's message. So I would, again, change the perspective, change the grounds on which you're having the debate. And I think there are two very sensible, um, frankly, pretty effective and a nice thing about this in politics is anytime you, you can find something that's electorally effective and also happens to be true, that's, I mean, I feel like that's a, that's a win-win. One is the cost. And then one is how much of a barrier, I got to workshop this a little bit because it's not very, it's not very catchy, but how much of a barrier private insurance companies actually are. Private insurance companies take a ton of money out of your pocket and all the, literally, and I work in the industry, literally all they do, their entire business model is to take as much of your money 
and make it as hard as humanly possible for you to actually get your doctor's visit pay, being paid for. Mm-hmm. That's it. There are some, so Trump <laughs> brought back true. these short-term insurance plans, these yeah. sort of junk plans. Some of these plans have, or some of these companies, I should say these insurers, I won't name names, so I'm going to butcher them in my head and I don't want to be liable. But some of these insurers, their loss ratio on this, um, this is, uh, time out, this is not, this is not a, bumper sticker. This is not a campaign right. message, but just to, to substantiate the argument, their loss ratio, the percentage, all the revenue coming in that goes out to patient care is like 40%, which is minuscule. 60% gets soaked up by overhead and executive salaries and blah, blah, blah. But the point is that you're paying twice as much as anyone else. You're getting poor quality of care. And then you talk about people's experiences too, which is very powerful. And it's something that Democrats, I think, historically have done better. Mm-hmm. Talk, you know, I can argue and talk blue in the face about the, the finances and where the, the shell game and how the money works and that sort of thing. But I think it's still, at the end of the day, also very powerful to talk about. Um, I saw a story just the other day where a guy with a guy was kicked off of his parents' insurance because he hit 26. He couldn't get his, his insulin paid for anymore. So it was gonna be like a thousand dollars a month out of pocket. There is a alternate insulin product that's available over the counter in some places. They took as a substitute, even though medically speaking, it's not really a one for one substitute and his doctor didn't advise it, but they wanted to, um, him and his fiance find some money in the monthly budgets. They wanted to pay for their wedding. And he ends up dying from not having an adequate supply of the right insulin. He's 27, 28 years old at this point. That is this, that's the private insurance system. That's what it does. That's how it works. That is how it's meant to work by the people who designed it, which is to say the insurance companies. So talk about that. Don't get distracted by, by the smoke screen, by all the BS about, you know, choice this or choice that. Stick to things that are true, that are relevant, that are meaningful to people's lives and clearly support our side of the argument, not theirs. Well, you know, it's as though Bernie was taking your advice in the last debate, which I thought was his most effective debate of the two, mm-hmm. uh, when they got into health care. And uh, Delaney was, wasn't it Delaney who, yeah, Elizabeth Warden put him down pretty good, I thought, uh, it, when she said, why are you even running for president? Right. And, and why are you a Democrat? You know, but uh, Bernie, I noticed he, you're, he yeah, he did not... Um, he did not dignify Delaney's comments with a response to the, he kept coming back to what he was saying. Like every other country has this, you know, uh, this is something you need. This is something that our country that you want. Uh, we can do this. I mean, I, he did not get bogged down in de- details. If you notice that he, yeah. he just stuck to these bigger points. Uh, I have no idea how effective it was with the, the voters as a whole, but uh, I was appreciative of it, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it didn't get down. And uh, all right, let's talk about something else that, uh, they, that they can expect from Donald Trump. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on this. You talk about packaging, how that's important. You talk about how sticking to your message and not being deterred by Donald Trump. How do you deal with Donald Trump when he does name calling? So for instance, mm. Donald Trump, uh, labeled uh, Elizabeth Warren very early on as Pocahontas. And he takes great delight in calling her Pocahontas. He gr- he takes great delight in calling Joe Biden Sleepy Joe. So let's say one of those two is the uh, standard bearer, is, is the nominee. 
And Donald Trump is just uh, unleashing, as you know, he will. Right. His Twitter uh, calling them names. He'll, every time he talks to them, he'll call them a name. We'll put that name out there. So how? what's the, the way Democrats should deal with that? That is a good question, and it's going to be a timely question, like you say. I mean, I think here, I think it's important to recognize, you know, I, I, I think it's important to challenge ourselves to do better, right? I mean, the, the, the rest of the conversation we're just having in terms of what can we do as Democrats or as progressives, especially those of us who have been in the arena and working on campaigns or even being a candidate, challenge ourselves to do better, right? I just hate that lazy argument about, oh, we it's dumb voters, what can you do, throw your hands up? I mean, you lost an election, look at the scoreboard, don't blame the refs, blame yourself and figure out what to do next time. That's just, that's kind of how I think about it. But that's not to say the things that are not legitimately outside our control. And I do think some of the way the media treats Trump is outside our control in a way that's really corrosive to American democracy. So in a just world, well, in a really just world, he wouldn't be president or he'd be president and at least not doing all this horrible stuff. But even in a reasonably just world, he could call Elizabeth Warren Pocahontas all day long and it'd be politically acceptable to point out, listen, this guy is clearly suffering. This guy uh, has problems with his cognitive functions. He gets disoriented. He often doesn't, doesn't know where he is. He has no sense of how to relate to people. He's in posing with a two-year-old orphan who just lost both their parents in the shoot in Walmart shooting in El Paso and he's got a big shaded and grin on his face and he's giving a thumbs up. There are things that are wrong with him. He's, I mean, if you really want to make it personal, he's overweight. He looks like crap all the time. He doesn't know how to tie, tie the appropriate length. He can't figure out how to get jacket cut on his suit. There's all sorts of things that you're not allowed to say about him. And yeah, okay. To a certain point, I get the historical precedent here because he is the president. But you could imagine any of the Democratic candidates touching on that, even in a very oblique way. And conservatives would just squeal like stuck pigs mm-hmm. and the media would come down like a ton of on it, like a ton of bricks on that Democrat for saying even a very garden variety of some of the stuff I was touching on a second ago in a way that and I don't know what you do about that because I, I you've been following the controversy of uh, like New York Times coverage and their headlines that they've written about these stories out of El Paso, right? This sort of which one? Um, so there was a there was one where um, they, they had a headline about Trump getting ready to visit El Paso, and mm-hmm. the original headline went something like, um, "Trump." It was like Trump urges unity in the face of racism. Now, that's insane. That is not what happened. It's yeah. not what's happening. It's not who he is. He was backed, you know, he was he was tweeting about this, you know, complete figment of his diseased imagination about this Hispanic invasion and right. blah, blah, blah. He's talking about before El Paso. He'll get back to, if he hasn't been doing it today, I haven't been on Twitter. Absolutely. He'll be there that, very soon. Yeah. That is who he is. Yeah. And so giving him the benefit of the doubt, despite two and a half years and counting of all this pretty straightforward, not terribly complicated evidence to the contrary, that's, that is, that is malpractice. Yes. And it reflects this inability 
because the first bias in the media, Ben, is not even so much liberal versus conservative. It is there have to be two sides to each issue. Yes. And we as journalists, again, it's parallel to the savvy thing, right? So as a serious Democrat, you're supposed to think that, oh, well, you know, you're, you are as serious or as intelligent as you are centrist. Mm-hmm. We have a generation of journalists who grew up in a pre-Trump mindset who think that the way to be a serious, respected journalist is to be as value-free as possible. If, if Trump says he's not a racist, well, then you got to put that in the headline and say, well, opinions differ. You can't respond to objective reality. You can't, you know, you can't call a spade a spade. You, you stay out of it, even to the point of absurdity, like how the Times in particular calls this guy. I completely agree with you. And I say this as a guy who's been in this business for 4,000 years. And I figure I'm too old now to care about the games of objectivity. It's such a farce. And I tease my journalistic friends uh, when they come on the show. They're very cautious about approaching anything resembling an opinion. So they always, journalists are taught to speak in terms of a he said and she said. So he said this and she said that. And you, you've seen talk shows where they do this. And right. then, they go, well, you judge. <laughs> and I'm, so I once asked a journalist, I said, who in your opinion is uh, more of a lunatic? Donald John Trump or Richard Milhouse Nixon? I said an argument could be made for each person. Richard Milhouse Nixon was a drunken insomniac who would wake, stay up late at night and then order bombing of Cambodia, a country we weren't even at war at. I'd say he's the greater lunatic than Donald John Trump. All right, that's just my humble opinion. And my journalist friends are like, Ben, you can't ask me that question because you're asking me to, to ascribe lunacy to two of our presidents. I can't do that. Right, right. right. I'm like, you're kidding me, right? (laughs) Donald Trump is not a lunatic? But if a journalist does that, then the other side will say you're biased. Right. And, you know, and to an extent, fair enough, because it's not my, I can get on a podcast and talk about this stuff. It's not my paycheck that's potentially at risk. So easy for me to say, you know, what's wrong with you guys, you know, grow a pair, you know, stick up for yourself. <laughs> grow up e- e- Easy enough. Yeah. But, um, gosh, what was I going to say? I don't know, but you were going back to the, the discussion of, uh, we still. Oh, I know what I was going to yeah. say. So yeah, maybe you can't express a, entertain the question or come down on one side of that question, you know, Nixon versus Trump. You can decide what issues you're going to talk about and who you're going to have on your show to talk about them. So you remember in 2016 when CNN, because you apparently, again, once this, this iron law of BS journalism, you, you can't, you have to have all sides, not just their ideas represented, not just folks giving the benefit of the doubt, but even have a, the same number of these campaign surrogates mm-hmm. on your talk show. You remember like, I mean, people who are, I mean, they're crypto fascists. You know, Jeffrey Lord goes home and puts a brown shirt on and does God knows what. I mean, these are very, very bad people. Mm-hmm. Bad hombres, as the president himself might say. <laughs> Not a Jeffrey Lord, but. Yeah. And you have these people on to repeat the same race baiting crypto fascist nonsense. Why? You don't have to do that. Man, maybe you can't just get on, you know, CNN and, um, you know, Wolf Blitzer, Jeff, uh, John Tapper, uh, Jake Tapper, excuse me, 
However, maybe can't just come out and say something, but you can decide who you associate with. You can decide who gets to hang out in the green room. You get to decide who gets to be on the panel shouting at each other for, you know, an 11 minute segment. You can at least do that much. And I think even, even from that very modest perspective, folks' response has been lacking. All right. So going back to the Pocahontas question, do you have that answer or not? If you don't, I'll just move on. But that, that is something that's a reality. Donald Trump uses uh, name calling a schoolyard name calling as a weapon. He used it very successfully, in my humble opinion, in the 2016 election, mainly in the Republican primary, to mock and malign yeah. and diminish his opponents. But he also did it against Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like to remind everybody, and I take this point very seriously, Hillary Clinton won the election. We have mm. an insane system yeah. in our country. That's something else. I go. I tell people, we have an insane system in our country. Nothing like it exists anywhere in the universe where if you lose, you win. Right. And right. I'm a, name the sport that where you lose, you're outscored, you still win. It doesn't happen. So uh, Donald Trump was victorious, but in part because he makes names up for people. Uh, so how do you deal with that? I think you, no easy solution you know, it'd be great to fight fire with fire, but like we just talked about, that's, you know, probably not, using the word practically, that's probably not an option, but you can at least not engage with it. So, you know, a huge misstep in my, in my opinion was Elizabeth Warren responding to the Pocahontas thing by having her ancestry tested by, you know, 23andMe or whatever, and trying to figure out if she's one 256th, whatever. Um, because you're not going, somebody doesn't respond. Plenty of people do respond to that stuff, obviously, right? People, unfortunately, there are plenty of people in our country who enjoy that stuff, who enjoy the the racism, the insults, the whatever. You're not going to talk them into it. Somebody who is, you know, guffawing to themselves at home about Pocahontas is not going to see that Elizabeth Warren has whatever this, you know, uh, quantum level is of her ancestry being Native American and think to my, think to themselves, oh gosh, I had that wrong. I shouldn't have been so tough on her. Like that literally has never happened. It never will happen. Yeah. So I think you tune in at the best you can. Um, don't respond to it. Responding to it is quicksand because if nothing else, not only is it not persuading people, it's not for the people who get off on that stuff. It's not going to cause them to, to acknowledge the error of their ways. And it's taking time away from what you probably do want to be talking about, which is how Donald Trump is eviscerating the working class in this country for the benefit of himself and his cronies. Uh, well, it'd be interesting to see if Elizabeth Warren is the president and I guarantee some, uh, uh, Jake Tapler type will ask her that question in a debate with Donald Trump on stage. I, I'll yeah, bet you, right, <laughs> I will bet right. you, uh, wherever you have, enjoy lunch, that's will question will be act. That is how journalists think. I've been a journalist a long time. Mm-hmm. I saw it in Jake's all, every question he asked. That was so one on one at journalism school, right there. Right. And uh, you take the other point of view and you throw it to him. And you say, "I'm just playing devil's advocate with right, you," right. Uh, and you buy into the other guy's logic. So I'd be curious. Uh, I don't have an answer. Uh, at how to do with nicknames, um, uh, but uh, there are brighter minds in mind, I hope, running uh, the Democratic Party. All right, let's get to another myth, uh, and this is, has to do the myth of the minority voters. You mentioned this in passing before we sat down. Talk a little bit about that. So I'll, I'll tell you a story to begin with. So when I was a candidate, 
when I was running in the 16th Congressional District Democratic primary, as you know, unfortunately, a big part of running for Congress, uh, running for any political office, but especially running for the U.S. House, is trying to raise this boatload of money. Part of what you do is you go to events and you hang out and you try to meet people who might be interested in supporting your campaign. It's ugly, and I, as progressive as they come, I support campaign finance reform as much as anybody, but this is where we are. So, and we can come back to that. So anyway, um, so from the jump, my last name is Mohammed. I mentioned I'm biracial. My dad's a, uh, was an immigrant from Pakistan. He came here in 1971. So happened to find a group um, in DC that is a PAC devoted to Pakistani American issues. It's, I mean, this is actually kind of fun. It's called the PAC PAC, P-A-K-P-A-C. So I went to their event in DC and you just do the networking thing. I, I was talking to this guy. Um, his given name is Tahir, which is like the most Pakistani name you could possibly imagine. I can't remember. I'm not going to say his last name if I did remember it. He was a very senior level civil servant. He was like a deputy secretary of, of the department or whatever. And he asked me, so this was January, February, January of 2017, I guess. So um, if it hadn't gone to the, the, the court case yet, it was about to the, the Muslim travel ban. He asked me what my position, position on that was. And I just thought to myself, like, what the hell kind of question? I mean, we're at a, we're in a room full of Pakistani Americans, almost all of whom are practicing Muslims. What, what do you, my name's Mohammed. I'm, I could be on that list myself for all the hell I know. What do you mean? What is my position on this? So I said, uh, uh it, con against um <laughs> and he sub the reason he asked yeah. and he went on to patronize me for like 10 minutes about explaining how i was wrong he supported the muslim ban ta here and he went by eric on his business card probably not coincidentally uh-huh. um i think what folks i'll play the poc card here i think what folks who do not come from an immigrant background don't realize is that there's not a ton of solidarity in these communities. I can only speak to, to my community, my dad's community. Um, but, you know, the number we talked about before we got in the air, I looked at my friend Chris's tracking poll on civics, um, something like 26% of Hispanic voters still approve of Donald Trump's job performance. And that's objectively, I think that's insane. He supports, you know, he was the one egging on these people to go into a Walmart and shoot it up, trying to kill as many brown skinned people as they can because blah, 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 blah. That's all happening in a very direct, overt, above ground fashion. And yet a quarter of Hispanic voters support him. He hates Muslims and those kind of brown skinned people nearly as much. And yet my new buddy, Tahir slash Eric was a fan of his yeah. because people get here. They've got all sorts of complicated yeah. feelings about the mother country. They probably, you know, they think that they've got a good thing going here. People after me, the next folks to step off the boat, as it were, they're going to mess it all up. That's, that is how a lot of folks think. And that is wildly underappreciated. There ought to, there should be a ton of racial solid, uh, solidarity on this stuff, right? Everyone who looks like you know, Pakistani or Indian or whatever, 
they should oppose this guy with their dying breath because people like us, in this case, who are going to be on a list and potentially sent somewhere, just like a lot of Hispanic folks, just like a lot of whoever. But they don't. And that's just the reality. Um, and so, folks, I mean, even my own, <laughs> I don't want to sound too cat, even my own race, the individual won the nomination um, early on. We go around the district saying, hey, and to be fair, the six, ours in the 16th, not the most uh, diverse congressional district in this country, but largest minority population we have are Latino or Hispanic, which makes sense. A lot of folks eventually get to our part of the state because they're migrant workers following the agricultural industry or whatever. Says, okay, well, we're going to turn out all these, whatever the number was, 8, 10% of voters because they've got to hate Trump. So that's 8 or 10% of the vote we got in the bag. And I just thought to myself, yeah, not so fast. That's not how this works. It's never been how it works. Um, and folks, you know, unless you've had that experience, unless you've talked to those people, unless you come from that background yourself, I think there's a enormous blind spot. This idea you just flip the switch. Hey, this guy obviously hates Latino Americans. Come out and vote for me because I'm not that guy and you're Latino. It, just, it doesn't work. Well, I'm, I'm curious about that poll. Uh, the 26%, it's a favorable rating. And, um, you know, if you broke it down by different uh, Hispanic groups, so for instance, what portion of that poll, let's say, are Cuban Americans, or uh, so uh, putting that uh, aside, I have a a theory, which I'll test with you. I don't know if you, I I should bring your friend Chris on to talk about this theory with him. It's more applicable to him. I have a theory that uh, people lie to pollsters. Mm. And we talk about this all the time in this show. Uh, Dennis is heavy emphasis on white people who lie to pollsters uh, by saying they're not for Trump when in fact they are for Trump. Mm -hmm. I think many people are familiar with that uh, type. Uh, To me, just as prevalent, and it's something I've seen for years now, are black voters uh, who tell pollsters that they're going to vote Republican or have voted Republican, and it's not borne out by anything resembling a real number. So, for instance, right. I distinguish between uh, – it's just another form of a poll. When you What do they call them when somebody leaves the polling booth and they – excuse me, sir. Exit poll. Exit poll. Yeah. The exit poll is a poll. Right. The one that really matters is an actual vote cast. If you look at any district that's 99% black, you will see real votes – Mm-hmm. Not exit poll votes, and I've not seen any evidence anywhere black vote <laughs> comes close. Like they'll say it's well, George Bush got twenty percent of the black vote. Twenty four. Show me a black district that got more than ten percent. I do not believe, and nobody can do it because it doesn't exist. But to keep repeating this, mm-hmm. so I believe that uh, voters lie to pollsters, and so therefore. It's really difficult to make, how do I put this, to shape a strategy based on a poll. Do you follow what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. No, I'm with you. I mean, we used to call this, I mean, you'll you remember this story, right? We used to call this the Bradley effect after Tom Bradley. Tom Bradley in uh, California, yes. Black man who ran for mayor of Los Angeles. Polls show that he was leading, then thought he was going to win. He didn't win. The idea is, oh, there's a social desirability thing among white voters. White voters want to say that they're going to vote for a black candidate and maybe they don't actually do that once they get in there. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I'm, I, 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 I'm sympathetic to that view, but you know, I'd also say that, um, you know, it comes down to that same question of competing identities. So I'll give you a slightly different example. So, um, 
I would try to solicit, <laughs> here's your window into the campaign finance process, right? I would try to solicit donations from folks who are politically active, who came from South Asian backgrounds, and you do this in a really gross way, which is that you try to find a bunch of people named Chowdhury and Khan and you know, Patel and whatever. Mm-hmm. And again, just like when I was telling the story about the um, the pack pack reception, I was really stunned to meet as many folks with that background who weren't interested in supporting a Democratic candidate, especially a Democratic candidate who at least partially shares their identity and has a similar name and all that. But the reason why, if you if you understand where public opinion comes from, where political beliefs come from, which is this crisscrossing of different identities that are pulling you in different ways and sometimes based on circumstance and how the polling question is asked and how things are written, whatever. Dumb luck. You know, this identity is pulling you in one direction versus another direction versus another direction versus another direction. One of those is going to win out and that's how you're going to answer the question. That's how you're going to vote. So the, um, in, in my case, with these folks of South Asian descent, they didn't see themselves as minorities. That was not a very um, salient, to use the 10 cent word that academics would use, that was not a very salient identity to them. Their identity that was really important to them was being a cardiac surgeon making 600 grand a year, was owning a series of gas stations, owning you know small business, being successful, making money, and knowing that, you know, just like anybody else, their taxes are likely to go down under a Republican administration versus Democratic administration. Now that's wrong. I was invited to um, I was invited to speak, and Samina was there actually. Um, they, the Islamic Center of Naperville had a bunch of candidates out, both candidates at a certain kind of ethnicity, like myself, or candidates who are running in the Naperville area, which is obviously not me. <laughs> um, it was toward the end, and you're just getting loopy and. 16, 18, 20 hour days start to get to you a little bit. And um, (laughs) I went up there to do my five minutes and I just, and I was frustrated by having conversation after conversation after conversation with folks didn't want to, and did not have a lot of this minority solidarity, Ben. So I got up there in front of a room full of, you know, 200 people of either Muslim belief or South Asian or Arab background. And I said, listen, I speak again, half Pakistani. All right, I get it that some of you vote Republican because they're pro-India, some of you vote, vote Democratic because they're pro-Pakistan, or no, other way around. Other Republicans way around. are seen yeah. as being pro-Pakistan and vice yeah. versa. I said, listen, we're all here now, and to them, we all look the same. And there's one candidate who's running an overtly racist platform that's gonna get some people hurt, and one candidate who's not, or one party is not, mm-hmm. and you all gotta get in line which I'm sure went over like a lead balloon. But, um, and of course, yeah. But, yeah. but like that's that's what you're up against. Yeah, and talk again. about the appealing to the myth of the dumb voter, but go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> it's really, uh, for a guy but who says a, it's a, not a myth, but go ahead. But it's the yeah. same deal, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, it's one poll is the true proportion out there in the real world that 26% of Latinx identifying people support Trump. Maybe, maybe not. Some of them are... Yeah, probably BSing the pollster. Even the best poll is not going to be the perfect mathematical sample of the country at large. There's going to be you know margin of error and all that stuff. But um, it's it ain't zero percent either, which I guess is my point. Yeah. And so it's the recognition that 
Um, it's definitely not zero you know, percent. And, it, and the reason why is, again, because people are not always thinking about pop, what we think about when we get into trouble thinking voters or people are, are lazy or dumb, I think often that's because they're simply thinking about politics in a way that we who are, you know, uh, the psychos who torture ourselves by following politics for a living or at least as a very strong hobby, don't think about it. And we don't realize that there's that gap there. All right. Well, let me give you a little, uh, another, another trivia. It's not so trivia, another challenge on, on polls in 2016. Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump, the eighth ward of Chicago, mm-hmm. which is perhaps 100% black. That's how much segregation we have in the city of Chicago, sure. okay? What percent of the vote do you think Donald Trump got? Seven. 1.5%. Mm. I prove my point. <laughs> So you said, (laughs) thank you, Robert Mueller. So I just, I, I, I've been down this road because uh, a a good friend of the show, Doris Davenport comes on all the time. We talk politics obsessively. Maybe I'll have the two of you on is it'd be interesting to see the two pair of the two of you. I'd like to pair my guests at various times. Definitely going to get you on with David Seaton. That's for sure. Uh, But uh, uh, you know, I, I, we were just talking about this. And so you just got what triggered that thought in my mind was you said, uh, the ultimate conclusion you made was, well, it's not 0%. Well, 1.5% is pretty close to zero. But that's subtly different though. Right. And I don't, I don't know anything about Chicago politics, but you know, and I don't, I don't know where the eighth ward is, but I'm guessing that in a lot of wards in this city, um, people don't vote because they just happen to roll into the polling place on election day, they vote because precinct captain such and such sent a car to their house. I wish they don't think the, that still happens. I, no, it, it doesn't happen. It definitely doesn't happen in a presidential race. And yeah. this goes back to the, my, the famous 2004 race. I don't want to spend too much time on this where I was utterly obsessed with this because I really didn't believe the 20% black total for George baby Bush okay. until 24. So I started doing insane things, Neil. I'm a little embarrassed to admit that I did. Like I started looking into voting habits in Alabama. So I started looking for all black districts throughout the country, Uh Alabama, Philadelphia, Ohio. I looked at Ohio. Why Ohio? Because if you recall in 24, I don't know if you were paying attention to politics, but in 24, the Republican attitude is they could build black support by get me, get me on this, follow me on this Mm -hmm. by coming out strongly against gay marriage. They figured out that, well, black people are conservative social issues. George yeah. Bush can win over black. No, they had this black preacher from Cleveland. I forget where he was in Cleveland. I went and looked at the precinct where his church is, and guess what? John Kerry mopped the freaking floor, okay, with George Bush. They, they, black people did not vote for George Bush because again, but because yeah. of those polls, yeah. all of a sudden, well, you know, black people are voting for George Bush because they like his stance on gay marriage. I'm like, you talk about a freaking lie. But, you know, it's just one little guy writing for the reader, Neil, and the whole world is rushing against me. Story of my life. Anyway, um, but that's when you talk about the the myth of minority voter, I, I think you're getting at something similar. In other words, the Democrats can't just assume that black and brown voters are just going to show up and vote Democrat. Right. Well, maybe the way to split the, split the difference there is that um, we're not going to turn on a dime. So, I mean, to go back, whether it's it's Ohio or, or wherever that can Chicago, maybe part of the explanation then is that, you know, there are plenty of 
people of color who are socially conservative. I mean, that that's true, I guess. Um, but maybe one would, and ultimately, of course, it backfired, right? Because eventually the tide really did turn on that issue, and it's, and it's not so much a winner, at least not in most parts of this country. But, um, you know, maybe if you'd, if you'd hammered a socially conservative issue in a particular community over a series of elections, that might have chipped away. I don't know. But, you, but you're not wrong. That, yeah. and that's, uh, well, that, that particular issue, I will say this, gay marriage. You talk about, this is going to tie all the themes together. Democrats, so many Democrats I know, would tell me in the 90s and the O's, I'm for, I don't care. Why do I care? But that swing voter in mm. this here and that, if mm-hmm. a Democrat just stood up and said, you know what? I'm for gay marriage. I don't care, blah, blah, blah. I don't know what the, yeah. I don't know what would have happened, Neil. If you take a stand, it goes back to what I said. In 1964, the Republicans got trounced. What did they do? They doubled down. They said, right. we're going to bring everybody to where we were. Democrats, Bill Clinton finagling with the don't ask, the don't tell. You know Bill Clinton couldn't care less one way or another. about. How right. about Barack right. Obama? Right. How many evolutions did he go through in this issue before right. he... <laughs> right. Well, okay. So... Let's let's point this out too, though, right? Which is that you know we're talking about politics, yeah, politics as done by politicians. What we're leaving out is politics as done by ordinary people and activists. So the other thing that happened after 1964, and especially in the 70s, with um, uh, moral majority and uh, council on the family and all those other mm-hmm. really really right wing uh, religious conservative groups, is they went out there and mobilized people. And they did it on these divisive issues, but they did the work. And on you know the side of light and justice, why public opinion, ultimately politics, gay marriage, same-sex marriage, um, LGBT rights eventually turned, is that you know I suppose starting around the same time, early '60s, a lot of people went out there and did the work and got their heads knocked in, you know, marched and you know did that very hard, blood, sweat, and tears. I don't want to, and you know, frankly, lots of blood. Um, you know, went out there and did that work on an mm-hmm. important issue. And so um, to tie that all together, I mean, like you're saying, is that, yeah, if you think about the, pol- the, the politics of a campaign, you think about, well, what can my candidates say or what position can I take or, um, you know, what donors do I get? How do I, you know, message? How do I communicate? All that sort of like blocking and tackling stuff. But at the end of the day, um, you know, you are at best, and, you know, Bernie says this all the time, you are at best putting a public face on that movement that already exists mm-hmm. and is hopefully growing. I can, you know, that that's the fun part of running for office is I can show up somewhere and just rattle off some ideas and, you know, try to put together a couple of clever turns of phrase and do good at public speaking and whatnot. But if there's not people who believe in the things that I believe and don't believe that I can deliver and aren't willing to go out and get ballot petitions and knock on doors, that doesn't mean anything. So um, in that short-term instant gratification world of a given election, yeah, we think about what lever can I pull, but you know, the only way things change over time is with a lot of really unglamorous work, 99 point whatever percent of which Absolutely. takes place not because of a candidate or a party even, 
but because of people are willing to fight and suffer for these issues. Uh, that is as good a place as any to uh, end this conversation to be continued later. And uh, you sound, whether you realize it or not, very much like uh, uh, Bernie himself in, in those debates where he said, these things aren't impossible. We need a revolution and we need to work hard. And essentially, uh, that's a very important lesson. Right, right. And again, we, we poo-poo that stuff, right? Um, you know, folks kind of roll their eyes at that stuff. And, you know, I don't know how it plays with all people, but... What he's saying is true. And, you know, the, the snowball starts pretty small at the top of the mountain. By the time it gets to the bottom, it gets pretty big. And you got to have that mentality. You got to be willing to suffer for that if you're going to get anywhere. Very good. That's Neil Muhammad. Neil, uh, it was a blast talking to you. And I'm going to get you back in here in another month. Maybe get you in here with David Seaton or uh, Samina or get some good debate going between these various uh, political minds. I'm flattered to be here anytime. All right. Very good. That's Neil Muhammad. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Save on Cox Internet when you add Cox Mobile and get fiber-powered internet at home and unbeatable 5G reliability on the go. So whether you're playing a game at home, yes, cool, or attending one live, no! you can do more without spending more. Learn how to save at cox.com slash internet. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial cable. Cox Mobile runs on the network with unbeatable 5G reliability as measured by Ookla LLC in the U.S. to H2023. Results may vary, not an endorsement. Other restrictions apply.